November 26th through December 2nd, of Morning and Evening, Daily Recordings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Morning and Evening, Daily Readings, by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, November 26th. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do refers to works that are possible. There are many things which our heart findeth to do which we never shall do. It is well it is in our heart, but if we would be eminently useful, we must not be content with forming schemes in our heart and talking of them. We must practically carry out whatsoever our hand findeth to do. One good deed is more worth than a thousand brilliant theories. Let us not wait for large opportunities or for a different kind of work, but do just the things we find to do day by day. We have no other time in which to live. The past is gone, the future has not arrived, and we never shall have any time but the present. Then do not wait until your experience has ripened into maturity before you attempt to serve God. Endeavor now to bring forth fruit. Serve God now, but be careful as to the way in which you perform what you find to do. Do it with thy might. Do it promptly. Do not fritter away your life in thinking of what you intend to do tomorrow, as if that could recompense for the idleness of today. No man ever served God by doing things tomorrow. If we honor Christ and are blessed, it is by the things which we do today. Whatever you do for Christ, throw your whole soul into it. Do not give Christ a little slurred labor, done as a matter of course now and then. But when you do serve Him, do it with heart and soul and strength. But where is the might of a Christian? It is not in himself, for he is perfect weakness. His might lieth in the Lord of hosts. Then let us seek his help. Let us proceed with prayer and faith, and when we have done what our hand findeth to do, let us wait upon the Lord for his blessing. What we do thus will be done well and will not fail in its effect. Evening, November 26th They shall rejoice, and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. Zechariah 4.10 Small things mark the beginning of the work in the hand of Zerubbabel. But none might despise it, for the Lord had raised up one who would persevere until the headstone should be brought forth with shoutings. The plummet was in good hands. Here is the comfort of every believer in the Lord Jesus. Let the work of grace be ever so small in its beginnings, the plummet is in good hands. A master builder greater than Solomon has undertaken the raising of the heavenly temple, and he will not fail nor be discouraged till the topmost pinnacle shall be raised. If the plummet were in the hand of any merely human being, we might fear for the building. 
but the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in Jesus' hand. The works did not proceed irregularly and without care, for the master's hand carried a good instrument. Had the walls been hurriedly run up without due superintendence, they might have been out of the perpendicular, but the plummet was used by the chosen overseer. Jesus is evermore watching the erection of his spiritual temple, that it may be built securely and well. We are for haste, but Jesus is for judgment. He will use the plummet, and that which is out of line must come down, every stone of it. Hence the failure of many a flattering work, the overflow of many a glittering profession. It is not for us to judge the Lord's church, since Jesus has a steady hand and a true eye and can use the plummet well. Do we not rejoice to see judgment left to him? The plummet was in active use. It was in the builder's hand, a sure indication that he meant to push on the work to completion. O Lord Jesus, how would we indeed be glad if we could see thee at thy great work! O Zion, the beautiful, thy walls are still in ruins. Rise, thou glorious builder, and make her desolations to rejoice at thy coming. Morning, November 27th Joshua the High Priest Standing Before the Angel of the Lord Zechariah 3, 1 In Joshua the High Priest we see a picture of each and every child of God who has been made nigh by the blood of Christ and has been taught to minister in holy things and enter into that which is within the veil. Jesus has made us priests and kings unto God and even here upon earth we exercise the priesthood of consecrated living and hallowed service. But this high priest is said to be standing before the angel of the Lord, that is, standing to minister. This should be the perpetual position of every true believer. Every place is now God's temple, and his people can as truly serve them in their daily employments as in his house. They are to be always ministering, offering the spiritual sacrifice of prayer and praise, and presenting themselves a living sacrifice. But notice where it is that Joshua stands to minister. It is before the angel of Jehovah. It is only through a mediator that we poor defiled ones can ever become priests unto God. I present what I have before the messenger, the angel of the covenant, the Lord Jesus, and through him my prayers find acceptance, wrapped up in his prayers. My praises become sweet as they are bound up with bundles of myrrh and aloes and cassia from Christ's own garden. If I can bring him nothing but my tears, he will put them with his own tears in his own bottle, for he once wept. If I can bring him nothing but my groans and sighs, he will accept these as an acceptable sacrifice for he once was broken in heart, and sighed heavily in spirit. I myself, standing in him, am accepted in the Beloved, and all my polluted works, though in themselves only objects of divine abhorrence, are so received that God smelleth a sweet savor. He is content, and I am blessed. 
See then the position of the Christian, a priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Evening, November 27th. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1 7. Could there be a sweeter word in any language than that word forgiveness, when it sounds in a guilty sinner's ear like the silver notes of jubilee to the captive Israelite? Blessed, forever blessed be that dear star of pardon which shines into the condemned cell and gives the perishing a gleam of hope amid the midnight of despair. Can it be possible that sin, such sin as mine, can be forgiven, forgiven altogether and forever? Hell is my portion as a sinner. There is no possibility of my escaping from it while sin remains upon me. Can the load of guilt be uplifted, the crimson stain removed? Can the adamantine stones of my prison house ever be loosed from their mortises, or the doors be lifted from their hinges? Jesus tells me that I may yet be clear. Forever blessed be the revelation of atoning love, which not only tells me that pardon is possible, but that it is secured to all who rest in Jesus. I have believed in the appointed propitiation, even Jesus crucified, and therefore my sins are at this moment and forever forgiven by virtue of his substitutionary pains and death. What joy is this! What bliss to be a perfectly pardoned soul! My soul dedicates all her powers to him who of his own unpurchased love became my surety and wrought out for me redemption through his blood. What riches of grace does free forgiveness exhibit? To forgive it all, to forgive fully, to forgive freely, to forgive forever. Here is a constellation of wonders. And when I think of how great my sins were, how dear were the precious drops which cleansed me from them, and how gracious was the method by which pardon was sealed home to me, I am in a maze of wondering, worshipping affection. I bow before the throne which absolves me. I clasp the cross which delivers me. I serve henceforth all my days the incarnate God, through whom I am this night a pardoned soul. Morning, November 28th For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. 3 John chapter 3 The truth was in Gaius, and Gaius walked in the truth. If the first had not been the case, the second could never have occurred. And if the second could not be said of him, the first would have been a mere pretense. Truth must enter into the soul, penetrate and saturate it, or else it is of no value. Doctrines held as a matter of creed are like bread in the hand which ministers no nourishment to the frame. But doctrine accepted by the heart is as food digested, which, by assimilation, sustains and builds up the body. In us truth must be a living force, an active energy, an indwelling reality, 
a part of the woof and warp of our being. If it be in us, we cannot henceforth part with it. A man may lose his garments or his limbs, but his inward parts are vital, and cannot be torn away without absolute loss of life. A Christian can die, but he cannot deny the truth. Now it is a rule of nature that the inward affects the outward, as light shines from the center of the lantern through the glass. When, therefore, the truth is kindled within, its brightness soon beams forth in the outward life and conversation. It is said that the food of certain worms colors the cocoons of silk which they spin, and just so the nutriment upon which a man's inward nature lives gives a tinge to every word and deed proceeding from him. To walk in the truth imports a life of integrity, holiness, faithfulness, and simplicity. The natural product of those principles of truth which the gospel teaches, and which the Spirit of God enables us to receive. We may judge of the secrets of the soul by their manifestation in the man's conversation. Be it ours today, O gracious Spirit, to be ruled and governed by thy divine authority, so that nothing false or sinful may reign in our hearts, lest it extend its malignant influence to our daily walk among men. Evening, November 28th Seeking the Wealth of His People Esther 10.3 Mordecai was a true patriot, and therefore, being exalted to the highest position under Ahasuerus, he used his eminence to promote the prosperity of Israel. In this he was a type of Jesus, who upon his throne of glory seeks not his own, but spends his power for his people. It were well if every Christian would be a Mordecai to the church, striving according to his ability for its prosperity. Some are placed in stations of affluence and influence. Let them honor their Lord in the high places of the earth, and testify for Jesus before great men. Others have what is far better, namely close friendship with the King of Kings. Let them be sure to plead daily for the weak of the Lord's people, the doubting, the tempted, and the comfortless. It will redound to their honor if they make much intercession for those who are in darkness and dare not draw nigh unto the mercy seat. Instructed believers may serve their master greatly if they lay out their talents for the general good and impart their wealth of heavenly learning to others by teaching them the things of God. The very least in our Israel may at least seek the welfare of his people, and his desire, if he can give no more, shall be acceptable. It is at once the most Christ-like and the most happy course for a believer to cease from living to himself. He who blesses others cannot fail to be blessed himself. On the other hand, to seek our own personal greatness is a wicked and unhappy plan of life. Its way will be grievous and its end will be fatal. Here is the place to ask thee, my friend, whether thou art to the best of thy power seeking the wealth of the church in thy neighborhood. I trust thou art not doing it mischief by bitterness and scandal, nor weakening it by thy neglect. Friend, unite with the Lord's poor, bear their cross, do them all the good thou canst, and thou shalt not miss thy reward.
Morning, November 29th. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor, and not suffer sin upon him. Leviticus, chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. Talebearing emits a threefold poison, for it injures the teller, the hearer, and the person concerning whom the tale is told. Whether the report be true or false, we are by this precept of God's word forbidden to spread it. The reputations of the Lord's people should be very precious in our sight, and we should count it shame to help the devil to dishonor the church in the name of the Lord. Some tongues need a bridle rather than a spur. Many glory in pulling down their brethren, as if thereby they raised themselves. Noah's wise son cast a mantle over their father, and he who exposed him earned a fearful curse. We may ourselves one of these dark days need forbearance and silence from our brethren. Let us render it cheerfully to those who require it now. Be this our family rule and our personal bond. Speak evil of no man. The Holy Spirit, however, permits us to censor sin and prescribes the way in which we are to do it. It must be done by rebuking our brother to his face, not by railing behind his back. This course is manly, brotherly, Christ-like, and under God's blessing will be useful. Does the flesh shrink from it? Then we must lay the greater stress upon our conscience, and keep ourselves to the work, lest by suffering sin upon our friend, we become ourselves partakers of it. Hundreds have been saved from gross sins by the timely, wise, affectionate warnings of faithful ministers and brethren. Our Lord Jesus has set us a gracious example of how to deal with erring friends in his warning given to Peter, the prayer with which he preceded it, and the gentle way in which he bore with Peter's boastful denial that he needed such a caution. Evening, November 29th. Spices for anointing oil. Exodus 35, 8. Much use was made of this anointing oil under the law, and that which it represents is of primary importance under the gospel. The Holy Spirit, who anoints us for all holy service, is indispensable to us if we would serve the Lord acceptably. Without his aid, our religious services are but a vain oblation, and our inward experience is a dead thing. Whenever our ministry is without unction, what miserable stuff it becomes! Nor are the prayers, praises, meditations, and efforts of private Christians one jot superior. A holy anointing is the soul and life of piety, its absence the most grievous of all calamities. To go before the Lord without anointing is as though some common Levite had thrust himself into the priest's office. His ministrations would rather have been sins than services. May we never venture upon hallowed exercises without sacred anointings. They drop upon us from our glorious head. From his anointing we who are as the skirts of his garments partake of a plenteous unction. 
choice spices were compounded with rarest art of the apothecary to form the anointing oil to show forth to us how rich are all the influences of the holy spirit all good things are found in the divine comforter matchless consolation infallible instruction immortal quickening spiritual energy and divine sanctification all lie compounded with other excellencies in that sacred eye salve the heavenly anointing oil of the holy spirit it imparts a delightful fragrance to the character and person of the man upon whom it is poured nothing like it can be found in all the treasuries of the rich or the secrets of the wise it is not to be imitated it comes alone from god and it is freely given through jesus christ to every waiting soul let us seek it for we may have it may have it this very evening o lord anoint thy servants morning november thirtieth and amaziah said to the man of god but what shall we do for the hundred talents which i have given to the army of israel and the man of god answered the lord is able to give thee much more than this second chronicles twenty five nine a very important question this seemed to be to the king of judah and possibly it is of even more weight with the tried and tempted o christian to lose money is at no times pleasant and when principle involves it the flesh is not always ready to make the sacrifice why lose that which may be so usefully employed may not the truth itself be bought too dear what shall we do without it remember the children and our small income all these things and a thousand more would tempt the christian to put forth his hand to unrighteous gain or stay himself from carrying out his conscientious convictions when they involve serious loss all men cannot view these matters in the light of faith and even with the followers of jesus the doctrine of we must live has quite sufficient weight the lord is able to give thee much more than this is a very satisfactory answer to the anxious question our father holds the purse strings and what we lose for his sake he can repay a thousandfold it is ours to obey his will and we may rest assured that he will provide for us the lord will be no man's debtor at the last saints know that a grain of heart's ease is more value than a ton of gold he who wraps a threadbare coat about a good conscience has gained a spiritual wealth far more desirable than any he has lost god's smile and a dungeon are enough for a true heart his frown and a palace would be hell to a gracious spirit let the worst come to the worst let all the talents go we have not lost our treasure for that is above where christ sitteth at the right hand of god meanwhile even now the lord maketh the meek to inherit the earth and no good thing doth he withhold from them that walk uprightly evening november thirtieth michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels 
Revelation 12.7 War will always rage between the two great sovereignties until one or the other be crushed. Peace between good and evil is an impossibility. The very pretense of it would, in fact, be the triumph of the powers of darkness. Michael will always fight. His holy soul is vexed with sin and will not endure it. Jesus will always be the dragon's foe, and that not in a quiet sense, but actively, vigorously, with full determination to exterminate evil. All his servants, whether angels in heaven or messengers on earth, will and must fight. They are born to be warriors. At the cross they enter into covenant never to make a truce with evil. They are a warlike company, firm in defense and fierce in attack. The duty of every soldier in the army of the Lord is daily, with all his heart and soul and strength, to fight against the dragon. The dragon and his angels will not decline the affray. They are incessant in their onslaughts, sparing no weapon, fair or foul. We are foolish to expect to serve God without opposition. The more zealous we are, the more sure we are to be assailed by the myrmidons of hell. The church may become slothful, but not so her great antagonist. His restless spirit never suffers the war to pause. He hates the woman's seed and would fain devour the church if he could. The servants of Satan partake much of the old dragon's energy and are usually an active race. War rages all around, and to dream of peace is dangerous and futile. Glory be to God, we know the end of the war. The great dragon shall be cast out and forever destroyed, while Jesus and they who are with him shall receive the crown. Let us sharpen our swords tonight, and pray the Holy Spirit to nerve our arms for the conflict. Never battle so important, never crown so glorious. Every man to his post, ye warriors of the cross, and may the Lord tread Satan under your feet shortly. Morning, December 1st Thou hast made summer and winter. Psalm 74, 17 My soul begins this wintry month with thy God. The cold snows and the piercing winds all remind thee that he keeps his covenant with day and night, and tend to assure thee that he will also keep that glorious covenant which he has made with thee in the person of Christ Jesus. He who is true to his word in the revolutions of the seasons of this poor, sin-polluted world will not prove unfaithful in his dealings with his own well-beloved Son. Winter in the soul is by no means a comfortable season, and if it be upon thee just now it will be very painful to thee. But there is this comfort, namely that the Lord makes it. He sends the sharp blasts of adversity to nip the buds of expectation. He scattereth the hoar-frost like ashes over the once verdant meadows of our joy. He casteth forth his ice like morsels freezing the streams of our delight. He does it all. He is the great winter king, and rules in the realms of frost, and therefore thou canst not murmur. 
losses crosses heaviness sickness poverty and a thousand other ills are of the lord's sending and come to us with wise design frost kills noxious insects and put a bound to raging diseases they break up the clods and sweeten the soil oh that such good results would always follow our winters of affliction how we prize the fire just now how pleasant is its cheerful glow let us in the same manner prize our lord who is the constant source of warmth and comfort in every time of trouble let us draw nigh to him and in him find joy and peace in believing let us wrap ourselves in the warm garments of his promises and go forth to labors which befit the season for it were ill to be as the sluggard who will not plough by reason of the cold for he shall beg in summer and have nothing evening december first oh that men would praise the lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men psalm 107 8 if we complained less and praised more we should be happier and god would be more glorified let us daily praise god for common mercies common as we frequently call them and yet so priceless that when deprived of them we are ready to perish let us bless god for the eyes with which we behold the sun for the health and strength to walk abroad for the bread we eat for the raiment we wear let us praise him that we are not cast out among the hopeless or confined amongst the guilty let us thank him for liberty for friends for family associations and comforts let us praise him in fact for everything which we receive from his bounteous hand for we deserve little and yet are most plenteously endowed but beloved the sweetest and the loudest note in our songs of praise should be of redeeming love god's redeeming acts toward his chosen are forever the favorite themes of their praise if we know what redemption means let us not withhold our sonnets of thanksgiving we have been redeemed from the power of our corruptions uplifted from the depth of sin in which we were naturally plunged we have been led to the cross of christ our shackles of guilt have been broken off we are no longer slaves but children of the living god and can antedate the period when we shall be presented before the throne without spot or wrinkle or any such thing even now by faith we wave the palm branch and wrap ourselves about with the fair linen which is to be our everlasting array and shall we not unceasingly give thanks to the lord our redeemer child of god canst thou be silent awake awake ye inheritors of glory and lead your captivity captive as ye cry with david bless the lord o my soul and all that is within me bless his holy name let the new month begin with new songs morning december second thou art all fair my love song of solomon four seven the lord's admiration of his church is very wonderful 
and his description of her beauty is very glowing. She is not merely fair, but all fair. He views her in himself, washed in his sin-atoning blood and clothed in his meritorious righteousness. And he considers her to be full of comeliness and beauty. No wonder that such is the case, since it is but his own perfect excellency that he admires. For the holiness, glory, and perfection of his church are his own glorious garments on the back of his own well-beloved spouse. She is not simply pure or well-proportioned. She is positively lovely and fair. She has actual merit. Her deformities of sin are removed. But more, she has, through her Lord, obtained a meritorious righteousness by which an actual beauty is conferred upon her. Believers have a positive righteousness given to them when they become accepted in the Beloved. Ephesians 1.6 Nor is the church barely lovely, she is superlatively so. Her Lord styles her, Thou fairest among women. She has a real worth and excellence which cannot be rivaled by all the nobility and royalty of the world. If Jesus could exchange his elect bride for all the queens and empresses of the earth, or even for the angels in heaven, he would not, for he puts her first and foremost, fairest among women. Like the moon, she far outshines the stars. Nor is this an opinion which he is ashamed of, for he invites all men to hear it. He sets a behold before it, a special note of exclamation inviting and arresting attention. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Song of Solomon 4.1 His opinion he publishes abroad even now, and one day from the throne of his glory he will avow the truth of it before the assembled universe. Come ye blessed of my Father, Matthew 25.34 will be his solemn affirmation of the loveliness of his elect. Evening, December 2nd Behold, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1.14 Nothing can satisfy the entire man but the Lord's love and the Lord's own self. Saints have tried to anchor in other roadsteads, but they have been driven out of such fatal refuges. Solomon, the wisest of men, was permitted to make experiments for us all, and to do for us what we must not dare to do for ourselves. Here is his testimony in his own words. So I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and, behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What, the whole of it vanity? O favored monarch, is there nothing in all thy wealth, nothing in that wide dominion reaching from the river even to the sea, nothing in Palmyra's glorious palaces, 
nothing in the house of the forest of Lebanon? In all thy music and dancing and wine and luxury is there nothing? Nothing, he says, but weariness of spirit. This was his verdict when he had trodden the whole round of pleasure. To embrace our Lord Jesus, to dwell in his love, and be fully assured of union with him, that is all in all. Dear reader, you need not try other forms of life in order to see whether they are better than the Christians. If you roam the world around, you will see no sights like a sight of the Savior's face. If you could have all the comforts of life, if you lost your Savior, you would be wretched. But if you win Christ, then should you rot in a dungeon, you would find it a paradise. Should you live in obscurity or die with famine, you will yet be satisfied with favor and full of the goodness of the Lord. End of November 26th through December 2nd